You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So if you got the handout from the back, tonight we're going to be talking about discipleship reorientation, kind of getting us to a picture of making sure we understand what discipleship is and also what it is not. Uh, And so as we do that, you see those opening kind of statements for us that most Christians can easily communicate the importance of making disciples, but few can articulate how they are personally engaging in the process, right? Um, in fact, that's one of the things that I often hear people talk about within church at context. They'll go, we know our job is to make disciples, we just don't know how to do it. You know, People say, that's what we're supposed to do, and I'll say, what's the point of the church? What's the point of your this? Whatever, and they go, it's, it's to make disciples. And I go, okay, what's your plan? How do you do that? And they go, I don't exactly know. <laughs> I'm not sure how we're supposed to do that, but I know I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to be doing something about it. And for all of our numerous ministry activities, we must reorient to the task of personal discipleship. There must come something in play that says, what am I going to do to take personal responsibility for my own self, but also to look for somebody else to see the growth and development in them, uh, to see that opportunity for someone to actually go in some ways further, faster, right? So so uh, with our uh, day today, uh, four services, three English, one Spanish. Uh, we had a wonderful time after uh, morning services because uh, Pastor Ernesto's birthday, and they had a surprise birthday party uh, for him. And so we got to kind of be a part of that. And, um, and I could sing happy birthday in one language, but not the other, right? Okay, but just a wonderful time and seeing God do a lot of those things. And then even in the um, 5 o'clock service tonight, um, uh, my two sons, Obadiah and Eli, have been playing a little bit more with the worship team. And so tonight, just being to be there and get ready to preach and watch my two boys lead worship it just gets kind of you know I, I don't get choked up a lot but i'm like this is pretty special you know just to see these guys go in there and uh they look like giants and they just act like they know what they're doing and uh and and i can just remember it in my mind right i can remember those first set of instruments they put in their hands and they had no idea what they're doing with them but they just banged a lot right okay uh, in fact when i was leading worship i got them these uh little um just training guitars and I would kind of tune them so that if they were just strumming it and didn't know what to do with their hands, it would sound decent in some keys. Okay, like that was the whole goal. So it just didn't sound like rattling. It was actually a chord and whatnot. And so during sound check, every Sunday morning, we come in there early on and I'd, I'd say, hey, you guys can just stand beside me during sound check. And so they'd be all serious. They'd be, you know, working on their tuning their guitar or whatnot. And all of a sudden they just strum it and they'd be playing and singing or whatever for the sound check. And then they go kind of do their thing afterwards. And, and now it's funny to think about when they were gosh, three, four, five, six, those kind of moments when they didn't know what they were doing, but just exposure to a little bit, right? And now seeing them just go along and, and lead worship here tonight, it's just a picture of uh, really what any type of teaching is and that it, it takes a while, right? It takes a long process. And, um, you know, when if, if, if you were to, to see these guys play tonight, you're like, oh, man, that's, that's incredible for 14-year-olds to be able to play like that and have the confidence to do that you're right and I can remember at four years old when they were just like just kind of going along and just kind of you know making a lot of racket and and part of that's at it I I can remember the moment where my father-in-law used the spare key and did something he was not allowed to do he found a drum set at a pawn shop and just left them in our living room with uh, you know two five-year-old boys right and um, I I, no, 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 they weren't even five. No, they were, we're talking three or four. It was horrible, horrible, okay? You walk in, the boy's are like, what is this? I'm like, apparently torment for me, okay? That's what this means. Like someone is angry with me, 
and has left a really bad prank, right? And, and, and so in those early moments, it's not a lot of music. It's a lot of racket. But over time, what once was racket turns into something that's actually enjoyable, right, and, and useful. In the same way, it's a picture for what discipleship or any type of teaching should be, is that sometimes in the beginning, we kind of want, hey, I shared this message with you, and so therefore you ought to know how to love your spouse, right? It's not that simple, right? Hey, you read this. Surely you're going to memorize the whole book of James before this evening. No, probably not. There's going to be a lot of mess-ups and a lot of times where it sounds a lot like racket, but in reality, over time, God's going to do something beautiful with it. But to do so, I believe that there's a need for what I call simplicity, uh, to get back down to a bare, kind of a, a simple approach of what it means to disciple people. Because the task of making disciples is a unified command, but it does require diverse approaches. So the call to make great, uh, to, to call to obey the Great Commission is to make disciples of how many nations again? All, All the nations, right? And so we think about uh, our folks that are even a part of our church that are IMB missionaries that go on other sides of the world and learn languages and completely sell everything on this part of the world and go to somewhere else and they just dive in. I need you to know that the Great Commission over in Africa is the same commission we have here in Greenville, right? It's to make disciples here. It's to make disciples over there. Now, the context feels differently. Sometimes there's different steps involved. No, no doubt about that. But I say that to say that, like, um, when we had incredible workers pouring into our preschoolers today, that is a part of fulfilling the Great Commission. It is. Um, when you have people who feel called to serve middle school kids, they are glutton for punishments and obeying the Great Commission, right? There, there's this heartbeat when, when you... When you Go and you serve at Miracle Hill when you reach your neighbor, when you go on the other side of the world. It's all a part of this. It's a unified command, but it does require diverse approaches, right? The same thing does not work on every single person. And so we have to think through that. So let me unpack this little statement here for you. That while we all start as infants in Christ, right? If you, follow, if you accept Jesus, the scriptures will say we're infants in Christ, we're babes in Christ. We each come from different environments, Right? Uh, even though we're all babies, we come from different environments, with certain dispositions, surrounded by unique relationships, and sometimes even carrying distinct baggage to which no other person can entirely relate. Now, that's a long statement there, but I want to unpack it for you, right? Uh, let me ask this question. How many of you um, started following Jesus, like you, you became a Christian, uh, 10 years old or younger? Raise your hand. Okay, Awesome. 10 to 20, raise your hand, okay? 20 and older, raise your hand, okay? Awesome, okay? So we see within this difference. So let me ask you this question. While spiritually speaking, uh, when you receive Christ, whether you're 7, 17, or 27, you're a babe in Christ, but it, are there some different dynamics from the starting gate? Yeah, there's no way around it, right? It's not bad or good or different. It's just, it's, just, it's just different, right? So we each come from different environments. Each of us... Um, some of you were raised in a Christian home, right? There were people that were dragging you to church. You didn't get a vote in the matter. Uh, and some of you grew up in Christian homes that you had models in front of you that were like, man, I want to have my dad's faith. Man, I want to love the Lord like my mom does. And some of you had an environment that made you go to church, but apparently it made no difference when everybody got back home, right? Now, does that environment change you a little bit? Of course it does. So we have different environments with certain dispositions, right? And what I mean by that is um, 
even when I look in this room, we're all not wired exactly the same. Y'all realize that, right? Um, some of us just come out just different, okay? Even around the table that you're at tonight, there are people who are more prone to this and more prone to that, and, and we're just different. And so there are certain dispositions. So, so, so within that, um, some of us are more eager, and we like to get things kind of nice and tidy. And so when you want to follow Jesus, you want that bullet point list, and you're going to have your quiet time every day at 6 o'clock to 6.32, and then you're going to start doing this and whatnot. And some of you are just like, I can, I'm trying to look for my Bible. I can't even find it, right? We're just different dispositions. We come out very differently. So to assume everybody has to have the same thing doesn't always work. Let me tell you why some people get really, really frustrated trying to follow Jesus. Um, uh, has any of you ever heard of the, the um, this old discipleship curriculum called the 2-7 series? You might know what that is. I, I know some people who, who really use the 2-7 series, and I'm thinking about a dear friend of mine who this person started following Jesus and started understanding discipleship through this curriculum called the 2-7 series. And they thought that what every other person in the world needs, guess what? It's the 2-7 series. It worked for me. It's got to work for you, Right? which how many of you have ever worked and tried to figure out how to discipline one child and what worked on one child does not exactly work on the other child, right? It just doesn't. Different dispositions, different things. But we're also surrounded by unique relationships. So um, our parents have a play on how we follow Jesus, right? Whether they were engaged or estranged, uh, if they were near, if they, they weren't, whatever. That has a different things. If you're married, if you have close relationships, working relationships, friends, whatnot, children, these unique relationships all put us at a different place. And then when I say carrying distinct baggage, that may sound really bad, but folks, every single one of us has something in our past that we carry with us, right? We do. There's stuff that we go along. Um, we were walking our poor pup, Luther, the other day, and he had gotten something in the grass, and he knew something was back on his tail, but he couldn't get to it. He just kind of like shaking. He's trying to find it. He basically drug his tail in some type of like stick, and it was just dragging behind him, right, okay? And he knows something's off. I can't see it, but I'm not going to be able to walk straight with this thing. Like it's just it's, it's slowing me down. It's bothering me. It's hindering from what I'm trying to do. And every single one of us, we've all walked through some stuff in our life, and we have different baggage that we walk with, right? Um, there are things in our past, regret, guilt, things that ha we have done, things that have been done to us. And it's just not easy just to kind of go on, right? Um, a, a friend of mine uh, one time had spoke of where uh, he used to love running and then he broke his leg. And months later, he still could run after that event, but he just ran differently from that point on. You, you still can do it, but it's just different, Right. Uh, any of you ever broken anything? I always hear this, but like when it rains, people's like certain joints and things ache. I don't understand it, right? So you're like, oh, my knee, it's raining. I'm like, what? Like, who knew the rain hurt so much? Okay, but it, apparently it does. Everybody says that, and I, I get it, right? And you go, now you don't ask for that. And you go, well, it's healed. Yes, it's healed, but it's it's still there, right? Still got scars from me. I was, I was showing something. I was telling my boys of the day, don't use your pocket knife like this because let me show you this. Okay, like this is a part of who I am now, right? These are these things. And so we, we come with different baggage. It comes along with us. And no in person in this world can entirely relate to your specific situation. Now I can say to you tonight, I grew up in a household uh, that had three people in it. I had my mom and my sister, and that was the three of us. Single parent, my mom was a teacher. And some of you may say, I can relate to that. And some of you go, nope, can't relate to that, right? And some of you, I can say, I grew up in a Baptist church. And some of you are like, oh, I grew up in a Baptist church. And some are like, no, we stayed away from those Baptists, okay? Like, it's just different, different situations, right? So nobody can entirely relate. There are things we can find in common, but there is difference. So, so here's the question, right? 
What was your exposure to religious environments while growing up? If you were to think about your story for a second, what was your exposure to religious environments while growing up? Um, some of you, once again, some of you were in church before you had the opportunity to even say. Some of you never darkened the door of a church until much later in life. Um, some of your exposure to religious environments, um, if you grew up in a very, um, uh, a very strict type of church, right? That really focused on certain sin elements, okay? It's like this. Um, in certain churches that I have known and... Uh, and helped people with and whatnot. These were kind of the, the most serious commandments. Um, don't uh, smoke, drink, or chew, or date girls who do, right? That's kind of like the, that. That's about as bad as it gets, right? Okay, there's other stuff out there. We're not really worried about that. That's, that's just the worst stuff right there. If you grow up in that religious environment, does it shape you? Yeah, it does. It shapes you. Like, you know, there, there are uh, some people that I know that grow in certain very strict legalistic environments that just feel all the time that God's going to get me if I, like, I don't know, like, um, I, I, one of my kids was playing solitaire. You know the card game, okay, solitaire? Solitaire, I've never known anybody bet against themselves in solitaire and gamble, okay? Okay, because typically you're playing yourself in solitaire. But I know people who, they have been trained so much that cards are the devil and you are gambling money, right? That if you have a set of cards, you're doing the devil's work, right? Okay, some of you know this, right? Okay, it's true. And it changes the way that you, you live and you think. So our religious environments growing up, have such a big part of who we are. The other thing is what certain dispositions make you who you are. If I were to give you uh, an opportunity, and some of you have taken a personality profile test. Some of you are like, I took a personality test and I failed. Um, you know, you, you have all these things that you try to figure out about yourself, but some of us are more temperamental. Some of us can't find a temper if we wanted to. Some of us are more positive. Some of us are more negative. Some of us are more organized. Some of us are more uh, just chaotic, right? We have different dispositions that make us who we are. Some of us are more passionate about the needs of others, and some are more like, I just want to commune with the Lord, and I don't want to follow Jesus as long as anybody else, right? We're just, we're wired differently, and sometimes it's important for you to think through, like, what makes me the way that I am? So, um, give, give you an example of when I start thinking about, like, how does my wiring affect the way that I live for Christ? I'm going to give you an example of how this can impact you. So, growing up in a single-parent uh, house, with a mom who's working as a um, public school teacher and my sister who's got a full ride to college, when I've got four years, when she gets that full ride, what is the pressure that comes on me? If I go to college, who's gonna pay for it? I'm gonna have to. Like I, I knew that early on. I had that in my mindset, right? And so it drives you to a major way to compete, to work really hard, to make sure you can pay the way, that you can pay the bills, that you're not going to be a burden on anybody. You kind of feel like, I'm not going to put my mom in debt. I'm just going to figure this thing out, right? However it takes, I'm just going to figure this out, and I'm going to work really hard. Uh, there were other elements in my life that really made me push to kind of feel like I turned into a big, big, big people pleaser and wanting approval and affirmation from others, and I felt like I had to work really hard to get anything that in my life. Now, now, you take that that's burned inside me for 18 years and I'm following Jesus. Can that have any type of good but also potential dangers in my own spiritual walk? The answer is yeah, right? Good, man. I'm driven. I'll get after it. I'll go after it. And then some of it can be the danger that I think that God loves me more than I perform for him. You see how this, my disposition, based on how I'm kind of wired now, has a, a big play in the way that I'm following Jesus. Third question 
What are the unique relationships that have shaped your life? Parents, spouses, children, coaches, teachers, mentors, bosses, friends, you name it. There are unique relationships that have shaped your life, some for the positive, some for the negative. And within that, um, if I were to ask you who are the three people in your life that have shaped you the most, and I did not say shape you for the better, I just said shape you the most, right? Some of you would have positive examples, and some of you would say, here's this negative example that changed everything about me, right? I'm, I'm wired differently because my dad was harsh, or you know, my, my mom passed away when I was really young, or this first marriage didn't work, or this child went you know, kind of rogue, and, and, and all these relationships, they, they shape our life and have a huge pivotal part in who we are. And the last is, what distinct baggage do you carry from your past? If you think about it, what are those things that each of us are walking through as we're trying to follow Jesus and know that these things are kind of trailing behind me, right? And, and to do so means that sometimes the areas that we need to grow in forward thinking are addressing the things in the past, right? Which I'm not always a big fan of. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, can we just let it be? And sometimes I can't get forward because I've got to deal with those things. So while God uses our vast corporate attempts, we discover within the biblical narrative and within our particular experiences that God moves uniquely with each specific person. So if we look at the biblical narrative, if we look at our particular experiences, God is in the sanctification work on all of us, but it looks differently for everybody. Um, give you an example. Y'all remember back, I guess this was probably in the 90s, there was a little tiny book that blew up. The hardback book, about this, this size, it wasn't that many pages, right? And everybody started buying this thing. Every preacher started preaching this thing. And it was about a biblical character that nobody knew about until this moment this book came out. Anybody remember what it was called? Prayer of Jabez. Prayer of Jabez. You got it, okay? Within this kind of long list of people, somewhere in Chronicles, it talks about this guy named Jabez that no one's ever heard about. It says he prayed that God would enlarge his territories, and God did it. And this whole movement took place, right? And they go, I want that prayer, okay? If Jabez got it, I want to get it. I've never known Jabez. don't know if he did anything good with it, but I want what he had. Why? Because it turned into this prosperity type of gospel, like God's going to give me all the things that I want in life. Healthy, wealthy, prosperous, right? And it kind of really sparked a lot of things. And this is what's interesting. In the biblical narrative, we see Jabez, right, pray that thing. And then we see the Apostle Paul, and God does not exactly enlarge the territories in the same way he enlarged Jabez's, did he? So there's probably sometimes Paul go, can we decrease these territories, okay? Because everywhere I'm going, I'm not getting prosperity. I'm getting persecution. There's more challenges here. We look at certain stories and things that are going on in the Bible. Um, you know, we go, okay, I want what happened in the life of David. You know, he, he completely took out that giant, and I want to defeat that giant. Nobody ever says, you know what, I want to be like Mary and have the birth of the coming Messiah child, right? Okay, nobody says that. We're selective in the stories that we want to use. We're, we're selective in the things. And so you look at the biblical narrative and you see God works in different ways. You look at our particular experiences, God works in different ways. And the danger is what I'd call the great decommission. We know obviously what, what God has called us to in the great commission. We join him in what he's called us to do. But there's almost a decommissioning of sorts of one thing that was supposed to be used for this is now decommissioned, not using it. And, and so I want you to think about it this way. What would you do if Jesus left his specific directions for you in your mailbox? Right? So you're like, please, let it be happy. Okay, like, and what, what if tomorrow morning you went out there, tomorrow afternoon you see it, and it's like, hey, 
Trav, this is what I want you to do. And on Tuesday, you need to do this. You need to talk to so-and-so. And you're like, oh, this is awesome, right? Everybody's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in my life. If he left it in your mailbox, you'd be so excited. Well, what if I were to tell you he has left it in the mailbox? It's parting words. And it was a letter that he sent to every single one of us that's contained in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make what? Make disciples of, uh, and that word means students, right? They're learning, they're developing, they're here. At this point, they're going to grow into something else. Make disciples of how many nations? All the nations. Um, folks, uh, sometimes people will criticize churches and go, why do you have to go on the side of the world? Because there's people here who need the gospel. Well, the answer is this. If there's anybody who needs gospel in Greenville or the other side of the world, we need to get to them. That's where it's at. It's just not local missions and global missions are not enemies of each other. It's the same thing, right? And so with this, we are called to make disciples, students, learners of not just some nations or one nation, but all nations. It says baptizing them, which is important because you think of baptizing, right? We have this idea that they are actually uh, being something out, that something's happening that is where others can see it. It's not a hidden allegiance. It's I'm, I'm being baptized in front of people. You can see this symbol in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you got the Trinity here. We've got this picture of coming under correct doctrine and understanding our identification with Him. Then it says teaching them to, let's look at this word here. Uh, this translation says what? Observe. And then it says teaching them to observe what? All. So here's that word all again that I want to point out to you because it is important. Note that he does not say, teach them to know all that I've commanded you. He does not say, teach them to memorize all that I've commanded you. He says, teach them to observe, do, apply. Discipleship is not just mental understanding of I get it. It is putting it into practice. How do you know when discipleship is done? Well, I guess when somebody's putting into practice all that Jesus said. Because that's the other part, right? It's not just teaching them to observe some that Jesus commanded. It's all. So it's the, the uh, encouraging parts, and it's also the, the challenging parts, right? All, all of those things that he's commanded you. And he says, Behold, I am I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There's this, this promise that, that God's spirit and presence is going to be with us at all times. So when I say, do you know what your job is tomorrow? It is this, right? What Jesus said is to make disciples. And... As far as I know, I think everybody in this room, you might be in the nation of the United States of America tomorrow at this point. Okay, maybe you might be traveling a little bit further out, but if you're going to be here, all right, make disciples in this nation. If you end up in another nation, make disciples there. And baptize them, bring them into the family of faith. Let it be something they're not hiding, but make it plain and evident. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, apply, put into their life, not some of what he's commanded, but all of what he's commanded, knowing that he's with us always. And so while this is the Great Commission, what we're called to partner with God, the danger is this, that the Great Commission given to all disciples has turned into the Great Suggestion reserved for the serious few. I'm afraid there are a lot of people that feel like the Great Commission are just meant for missionaries. The Great Commission is just meant for pastors. The Great Commission are just those who've gone to seminary, but in reality, the Great Commission was given to all. It's not a suggestion. It's not a suggestion just for the serious few. Um, one of the dangers we talked about a couple weeks ago is that there are many people who think in their mind, right, that there's almost this sense of um, our job 
is, is to teach, and, and we get that aspect, but there's almost this different thing about who is a Christian and who's a disciple. In reality, there's, in Scripture, there's not a difference. It's not like, well, I'm a Christian and I've never really grown any, and now I'm a disciple because you start growing. In reality, when Jesus says, come follow me, he meant keep moving, okay, right? It's not just a one-time belief, I'll raise my hand, pray a prayer, walk an aisle. It's, I'm following him, and so it's not just for a serious few. When you say, I'm ready to follow Jesus, you mean I'm ready to follow Jesus. Which means 10 years on, you still should be moving, right? So it's not just for a serious few, it's that when we decide follow Jesus. I always, you know, laugh by that time, but when, you know, I tell Obi, like, hey, I'm, I'm, after he received the gospel, I'm going to start discipling you. He's like, like, one of the original disciples? I'm like, just like it. Like, that's, that's what the call is, right? We're supposed to go and make those disciples above all else. The Great Commission intended for obedience has been altered to what I call the Great Commission associated with negligence. Unfortunately, what's happened is we're supposed to be intended for obedience. We're supposed to obey. We're supposed to follow but it's been altered to instead of the great commission, the great omission. Which is, we know what God's commanded us to do, but we're going to omit it. We're not going to do it. We're not going to follow it. And at some level, we are associated with, with negligence. We know what we're supposed to do. We know what we're supposed to what God has given us. And if we drop the ball, it's not on Him. It's the fact that, that we haven't done what God has called us to do. We're supposed to be the mouthpieces, right? We're supposed to be out there. So somebody jokingly said after preaching the sower and the seed, they said, you know, I really got out of your message. I heard more of this, but basically what I heard is if I ever hear a bad sermon, it wasn't your fault, it's mine. I said, you got it. Okay, exactly right, okay? There's some level. If you ever hear me preach a bad sermon, it ain't on me. It's on you. Okay, you got to be receptive, fertile soil. That, that This seed goes out, right? But, but with this, there is a time for us to understand that there should be a level of obedience for us to say, I'm not going to omit any parts of Scripture. I want to follow Him with everything that I possibly can. The Great Commission urging us to make disciples has drifted into the Great Decommission, enabling us, instead of making disciples, we make excuses. This is why I can't go. can't go overseas because I, I don't know enough. I can't teach anybody because I, don't, uh, I haven't had enough experiences. I've got too much in my past to really teach anybody the way. We have a list of excuses. You remember uh, what Moses' excuses when God called him? Yeah. Go, to, go to Pharaoh and, and, and uh, tell people <laughs> to tell, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And I love one of the excuses that Moses says. He goes, who am I? He's not going to listen to me. And you know what God did not say? Moses, you are somebody important. Don't you be rough on yourself. You're a good guy. You, you, man, I, I think people listen to you. You're handsome. You're likable. Winsome. Everybody wants to listen to you, Moses. Moses says, God, who's going to listen to me? He's like, well, I'll be with you, okay? It's just like this. It's not, Moses, you're going to be okay. It's you're going to be okay because I'm with you, right? Because I, I know, Moses, I know you've got problems. I know you've got issues. I know you've got inconsistencies, but I'm going to be with you. And, and so instead of us making excuses about why God couldn't use us, what if we just said, okay, I, I'm going to do this. I, I'm going to go forward. We know that one of the biggest issues in discipleship comes down to this one issue right here, that the Great Commission calls us to make disciples and not converts. And as a whole, the church in America has stopped short of what God has called us to do. In the height of the wonderful initiatives that were seen in places like Billy Graham Crusade. Focus on evangelism was so high and so needed at a time. But what happened was, and I don't think anybody intended this to happen, but what happened was 
we collectively started having sighs of relief if we can just see somebody raise a hand or walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get baptized, and we think, good, they're, they're done, right? They're not going to hell. Huh, that's the job, right? And we stopped at this one thing to make converts. We thought that Jesus said, go therefore and make, this, make converts of all the nations. Let's just get people to pray a prayer. Did you know that there have um, there was a time uh, last summer when I was preaching at a youth conference and I gave an evangelistic call and I asked students if they are ready to follow Jesus for the first time to stand up. And this huge group of students stood up that I it caught my breath. And I thought, are y'all sure? And I said, sit back down one more time, okay? Because I was really concerned it was an emotional decision and a lot of other friends were standing up and doing it and I wanted to make sure this was sincere. So you really start pushing in, right? Um, I, I can go into certain parts of the world or in certain situations, and I know, and I've seen it happen, you can manipulate people and go, now anybody here want to go and burn in hell forever? You know your grandmama's in heaven. Don't you want to be with your grandmama? They got AC there. It's wonderful there. Which one would you rather have? If you want to be with your grandmama in air conditioning and all the nice people, raise your hand right now. Well, that's easy, right? You won't believe it. We had 100% people receive Jesus tonight at our event. Everybody received Christ. Well, over half of them aren't even baptized. They're going to get baptized again. Don't worry, we're good. Right? Our, our, number, our baptism numbers look great right now. What does it come down to? We had a lot of converts. We never made a lot of disciples. People got baptized, and they never grew. Um, we thought the goal was to keep them out of hell versus let them walk in the kingdom of heaven right here and right now. And so what took place is there is a, a danger here. Now, you need to know this. Evangelism, it is necessary, but it is not ultimate. Evangelism, sharing the gospel, the euangelion, where evangelism comes from, right? It, it's necessary, but it's not ultimate. Sharing the gospel with somebody is, allows people to start there, but it's not what we're called to end. And so if we think about it this way, that if our spiritual strategies focus solely on evangelism to the neglect of discipleship, we are doing these immature believers a seismic disservice. If all we're doing is just trying to get more converts, and we're not discipling people, we're allowing people to have a confirmation of a baptism t-shirt, a photo op, an emotional experience, but they are not walking with Jesus. So I, I, I've always used the, the analogy before that uh, people will talk about, oh, I, I met Jesus back in 1978. I met Jesus in 1992. I met Jesus, you know, last year or something. Well, my, my question is not if you met him back then. My question is, are you still walking with him today? Amen. You know? So I met Amanda Beth Willard in 1998. I was a junior. She was a sophomore. I thought she would make a great prom material. And she was a great prom date material. And I asked that little lady on dates, and we went to the prom. And then at one point, here, here's the thing that I know, back in 1998, right, last century. I met a lot of girls in 1998, okay? Met a lot in my class. Met a lot of different events in the church. I met a lot. There's only one that has truly changed my life. You know why? I'm still with her today, right, Okay. She changed her last name. She's no longer Willard. She is an Agnew now. And we have been, we got three kids together. We got a mortgage together. We have vacations together. We have photo pictures together. There's a lot of people I met way back in the past, but there's only one that has changed my life, and that is known by, am I still in a relationship with her? 
The danger is there's a lot of people out there that will say, I met Jesus back then. I'm going, be able, are you connected to him now? Are you being discipled? Are you walking with him? And I believe that our churches have been overrun by spiritual infants caring for one another because many have never matured in their faith. Um, you know, we have a wonderful, wonderful preschool department, but I think it would be kind of shocking to the parents if you went up there and, and there was a preschooler doing the check-in and all the teaching when the preschoolers got there, right? You know, taking the passy out. Hey, what, what's your kid's name? You want to take him over there? Got any food allergies? All right, got it. You know, he's like, no, I don't think I'm going to drop my kids off here. I think they'll just stay with me in service. Like, you sure? We got plenty of them in the back. You know, we're, we're good or whatever. We're just getting them like Cheetos and Dr. Pepper. Everybody's fine, right? You're like, no, I'm not sure if I want to leave my kids here. Why? Because you wouldn't trust preschoolers to take care of other preschoolers. And I'm going, why are so many churches in our country so immature? Because we've never discipled people. And now the immature people are just making more immature people. And there's a few that are saying, well, let's follow them. Let's go deeper. The model of discipleship, if we look at what Jesus is truly calling us to, that in its simplest form, disciple means one true word. It means learner. Someone who's learning something, okay? They're learning something. And, and I, I say it that way because we think disciple and we think Jesus. But you need to know this, that discipleship was a thing before Jesus was something. Did you know that? Discipleship, the word that we use, is actually used in a lot of different contexts. In fact, discipleship was a thing before Jesus was a household name. In Jesus' days, there were plenty of people who would classify themselves as a disciple of this guy or that guy. Like, oh, who are you? Oh, I'm a disciple of Job. Oh, yeah, Job's a pretty nice guy. Yeah, I'm learning everything about him. And it might be he's teaching you in the ways of carpentry or he might be teaching you in the rabbinic school of this or whatnot. You're learning something. So discipleship was not just some type of invention by Jesus in this moment. Discipleship was a thing and this is why it's important for us to understand because when we think about learning if I were to ask you there's an environment okay? Uh, typically when I say where do you go to learn something most of us would say well they call it a school right? And what do you do when you go to a school? You walk in and you do what? You learn, you sit down at a table, there's somebody talking, you better be listening, you go home and do your work, and then come back and sit. Well, that's not exactly discipleship back in Jesus' day. Um, what you don't see, Jesus look at a bunch of fishermen and say, come follow me, and I'm going to make you academics, right, okay? Come to my classroom, and i got a blackboard, and I'm going to show you everything, right? In fact, disciples matured by immersing themselves in modeling, equipping, and implementing types of environments. In Jesus' day, those that would call themselves disciples of Jesus or the disciples of Joe would say this way. They were matured by immersing themselves in a relationship with someone. And in that relationship, someone was modeling them whatever it was that they wanted to know how to do. Someone was equipping them so that they could actually do it themselves, but also implementing like hey why don't you do this in front of me and show that you can do this now right um so uh the the issue that comes down to and, and uh, a few months ago i had this moment with some of the guys that are training in this church going into ministry and uh, i've shared this story with some of you but there were there's this moment that i remember asking all these guys in there what was their first moment of ministry experience and most guys, including myself, was something like, oh, it was a youth Sunday, and the church let me preach. I was 16. And I'd say, how was that? They're like, I'm thankful they don't have a copy of it, okay? Because it was 
probably heresy, right? Okay, no, not really good. And I asked them, I said, uh, I said, tell me the training that you have. I'll, I'll tell you what my training was. Uh, I got the opportunity to preach on a youth Sunday. Who taught me how to do it? Nobody. Did anybody look over at my outline before they gave me a microphone? Not a chance. No one taught me how to open up God's Word. Nobody told me how to make an outline. Nobody told me how to make one simple truth. Nobody told me hermeneutics, homiletics. Nobody said, hey, here's what you need to do. Can you please let me check your outline and make sure there's not anything heretical in your, your uh, unpacking? And then after the fact, let me ask you, uh, when the first sermon that I preached at age 16, how much feedback do you think that I got? Constructive feedback. Zero. You know what I got? I was really good for a 16-year-old. Man, I was impressive. Wow, way to go. Man, you're going to make yourself a good preacher one day. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you very much. Hey, can you tell me how I can do better? Oh, no, there's nothing you can do better. Now, folks, I know it wasn't that good. Okay, right? There's a lot when I was 16 and this very day that I could do better, but nobody told me one thing to work on. Nobody. 16, 17, 18, 19. Nobody did this. Now, the reason why I say this is What's so unique, I, I was talking to these guys that are in, in ministry training, and I said, now tell me your other ministry or your other job. And one of the guys, I guess Moe's is a common theme here for today for this sermon right now, but one of the guys who worked at Moe's, I said, tell me about the first burrito that you rolled. Oh, well, I had to shadow somebody making burritos for two days before they'd ever let me touch a tortilla shell, right, okay? I had to watch them, I had to read all this stuff, watch all this stuff, then shadow somebody as they do it. Then on day three, I start doing it and they shadow me. On day four, they shadow again after they've done some constructive criticism. And then I look at him and I said, so is it fair to say that Moe's did a better job preparing you to roll a burrito than the church did for you to prepare a sermon? The answer was yes. Let it out. What happens is in a good learning environment, someone is modeling how you do something. They equip you. Now let me show you this is what you need to do it. But then it's implementing. Now why don't you do this in my presence and I'm going to give you some feedback. That's what original disciples were made of. Very different than what we experience today. Now a disciple became a follower of the mentor and learned all that he could by observing the mentor's life up close. It's more than a classroom setting. It was more than I'm reading your books. It was... These guys were doing life together. I think it's important for you guys just to remember that when John the fisherman was on the edge of his father's boat and Jesus says, come follow me and leave the biggest catch of your life, and John said, I'm in, right? For the next three years of his life, we rarely see a moment where Jesus is, but John is not. For three years. This isn't, right? Let's be honest. I'm doing a discipleship class tonight. I'll see you guys next week, okay? But the people that I'm discipling, I see more than once a week for an hour in a classroom setting. It's face-to-face, life-on-life. Like they know where I'm at. And, and so there's this idea of this mentor following. That's why I think it's so beautiful. In John chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse in the Gospel of John, he writes this way. And I suppose that if we were to write other things that Jesus did, that not even the whole world could contain the books that would be written. And I go, what are you saying, John? He goes, oh, you see chapter 21 chapters of my gospel? You see Matthew's 28? You see Mark 16? You see Luke's 24? Oh, you think that's a lot of Jesus? We're not even scratching the surface. You don't know what it's like. We, we give you some highlights. But just even having breakfast with him was life-changing. Just being there every single time. Seeing how he would show intentionality in his voice when he would talk. 
how make sure he'd come alongside when we were discouraged. Like all these things, the whole world can't contain the books was there. It was learning, observing the mentor's life up close. Now really quick, a neglect of discipleship. Um, five things that can kind of be a neglect. First one is this, is apathy. Um, why do some people neglect discipleship? Well, some people have this issue that's just too many worldly concerns have stolen our hearts and quieted our passions. We just don't care about making disciples. It's not important to us. There's too many other things we care about deeper than this. It's stolen our hearts, quieted our passions, and we just don't care about seeing people follow Jesus closer. So there's just no concern. You don't wake up in the morning burdened by that. It's just not a concern of yours. Second neglect is something called insecurity. Many of us feel very insecure when it comes to following us. Many of us have imaginary spiritual qualifications in our minds of which we will never qualify. I'll ask somebody, can you teach this? Oh, I don't know enough of the Bible yet to teach. All right, well, when will you know that you know enough of the Bible before you can teach? Uh, just give me an example. What does that look like? There's no, there's no, it's imaginary. It's just this... This imaginary line that every time you get closer, it moves a little bit further down, right? And so it's just insecurity. I'm not good enough. I don't know enough. And I always go back to, but what do you know? Could you give that away? What have you experienced? Could you give that away? Third neglect is complexity. Sometimes, folks, I don't know if y'all realize this, in church we make things way more complicated than it has to be. We have put so many hurdles in front of our efforts that we honestly believe that discipleship is too difficult even to attempt. Well, I'm going to have to do this, and this is going to have to take place, and this is going to do and it just It's complicated. It's way too complicated versus let me take what I've got and share it with somebody else. Fourth one is unavailability. Um, people take time and effort, and we would rather meet with them occasionally than walk beside them throughout life. Y'all know this, but, but people, some people out there got issues. Y'all, y'all know that, right? Okay. Uh, complicated, multi-layered, multifaceted, and we just know that to make ourselves available is, is challenging. And um, I realize this, most of my life's crises have never happened on a Sunday morning. Typically happens Monday through Saturday, doesn't it? I don't know why. But when I need somebody, we're typically not gathered as a church. And so am I going to make myself available for people when times are difficult? And the first thing, uh, the, the fourth, the fifth thing, um, is unclarity. Many people refuse to undertake discipling another because they simply do not know where to begin. Just, I don't know where to start. I know it's important, but where should I start? What, what is it that I could do that could change things? Really quick, the, the task of discipleship should be seen this way. In discipleship, we understand that no one has arrived and we are all works in progress. Does anybody here tonight think that you have arrived at spiritual perfection and you're good to go? I don't. Um, in fact, sometimes the closer that I get to Jesus, the more I see that I got to work on, right? It's kind of like this. If something's in the dark and you get closer to the light, you can easier, you can see where the blemishes are, right? The closer that you get to the light, you think it's that issue. You go, oh, I didn't know it was that and that and that and that, right? You paint a wall and you put a light on it and you realize, oh, there's a lot of imperfections here. The closer it gets to the light, the more imperfections you see. So sometimes when we walk with Jesus, we go, well, I'm not, I haven't arrived yet. And we're all works of progress, but that helps me realize this. I cannot wait until a moment where I feel like I'm at the place where I can. So as we're going to disciple people, we realize we haven't arrived. They haven't arrived, but we're all works of progress. But we need simple processes that are simple, adaptable, and repeatable. So if we're going to disciple somebody, it needs to be something simple, right? 
It needs to be something adaptable. I mean, look where you are and, and kind of use in that context, but it's also something can be done repeatable. So um, years ago, um, there were a lot of mission teams that started using a, um, uh, a tool that a lot of people really, really loved. Some of you may have seen it, heard it. It's called the Evangel Cube. Anybody ever seen that thing? It's a little box. It kind of looks like a Rubik's Cube, but you kind of unpack it. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some, I got to bring one of these. Some of you like, I've never seen this. I'm going to educate y'all. But it's this really cool little thing, and you, you like unpack the block, and then it would, it would show like this picture of sin, and you do this, and there's Jesus on the cross, and then there's the empty tomb, and all this kind of crazy stuff. And so all these people would travel from America all the way to the other side of the world and go, we're going to share you guys the faith. Here's my cube. Woo! Okay, he wants to follow Jesus. And I want to follow Jesus. Go, okay, now you guys go and do the same thing in tribes that we can't get to. And they got back on their plane with, guess what? Their adventure cubes. And all these people go, how do you share the gospel? We don't have the cube. We got nothing. We don't have anything to share, right? It used to be before the adventure cube, it was called these flannel graphs, right? Y'all remember those things? Like you throw the Bible carrot and go in there. It does amazing stuff. But what happens if the people that you've taught don't have a flannel graph that go, what do I do? I, I cannot give, because I don't have the, the tools, the resources that you have. So what I think is so important when we get to discipleship, it's got to be simple. Take what you've got, teach somebody else. It's got to be adaptable. Where are you right now? I'm not going to give you my 13 favorite lessons on discipleship because four of them you might not need. You, these are the areas in your life you've got to focus on. It's got to be repeatable. I want whatever I give to somebody, can they go turn and teach it to someone else? One of the guys in our church, Brett, who uh, sent me a picture a few months ago, sent me a picture of, hey, here's a group of guys that were praying. He said, I want to let you know you helped train them to go on a mission trip tonight. I said, what do you mean? He goes, remember that Bible study you gave me in Exodus last year? I totally ripped it off and I used it on them. So while you weren't in the room, you were in the room. And I thought... I probably ripped that Bible study off somebody else somewhere along the way. And you see what discipleship does, right? He's saying, look, it's just repeatable. It's just opening up the word. It's, it's teaching somebody something that you have learned. Discipleship is the intentional investment of a believer for the instruction and imitation of another disciple. So it's intentional. I'm going to help you. It's investing something of your time, your lessons, those things that you can give. And it's of one believer to try to teach people with instruction. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to do, but also imitation. Come follow me. If you want to know how to do this, right? You want to know how to do a quiet time? Let me show you how I do my quiet time. You want to know how to lead your family? Watch you come over to my house. I'll show you how I can lead my, how I lead my family. You want to share your faith? Watch this, right? It's just come watch what I'm doing. And as you watch what somebody's doing, you're going, man, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, that's not so good. I think I can improve. Praise the Lord, right? That's great. Um, some of you have been trained in a tactical skill at work that you learned a better way to do it. Well, that's awesome. And then now the next person, you can teach your way. So simply put, discipleship is these three things that we're going to be done for tonight. Number one, it's evaluating where someone is spiritually. You look at your child, your grandchild, your friend, the person in your group, the person at work, and you just say, where is this person spiritually right now? And they may have a lot of stuff going on or very little things going on, but it kind of gives you the scope, right? This is where this person is. Number two, you're assessing where they need to make progress. So now after I've evaluated where they are, now I'm going to start assessing them where are the major areas that they need to make progress in. And what happens in this is, let's just say you come across somebody who goes, man, 
They really don't know how to pray. Their prayer life is really shot. Um, they have a real bad, they're in bad debt right now, and they, somebody needs to teach them biblical stewardship, and they're scared to share their faith. And you say, I am really good at praying and sharing my faith, but woo, biblical stewardship, we might have to phone a friend on this one, right? And what happens at that moment is absolutely beautiful. It causes you to work on that area yourself. And it may just be, I'm not really good at this, I'll be honest with you, but so we're going to read this book together and we're going to get good together. And guess what happens? Two people's stewardship gets better at the moment. And then later, who knows how many people because of what happens in discipleship. Assessing where they need to make progress. And then three, as simply as I can put, helping them get there. It might be through your lessons, through your experiences, through your exhortation, or it might be, I got somebody I want you to talk to. I got this video that I want you to watch. I want you to come down to this center with me and we're gonna spend some time together, whatever it is. So when we come down to discipleship, folks, we make it very, very complicated, but at the very essence it is this, follow Jesus and help somebody else follow him as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you so much for giving the great commission to us. Lord, help us not fumble it or drop it on the way. Help us not give, um, such qualifications that are higher than what you have given us but help us that when we learn things we just go and pass them on to somebody else might not be great might not be perfect not, might not even be complete but ever we have we give it to others and then tomorrow we learn a little bit more we find somebody else to share it with and that we would find a way to solve the issue in the church that is kind of just isolated everybody to think about our individual walk with Jesus and get to a place where we start seeing that if that seed hits good soil, not only does it produce fruit, but it produces fruit to up to a hundredfold. We could take what God you're teaching us and teach others and we could help fulfill the Great Commission. For that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.